Welcome to Lithium Ion Rocks, Season 1, Episode 8. Q1 2019 smells like 1999 teen spirit. Lithium Nirvana. 25 years ago this week, Kurt Cobain was found dead. And this podcast is a bit in homage to him, but uh, he has, his work has definitely inspired quite a bit of uh, lithium-ion bull and lithium-ion rocks work over the past two and a half years. This is our longest podcast uh, ever uh, at request of uh, some people, including, you know, Lax, John Kanalitsis, uh, shout out to him, who suggested he'd like to hear more banter, you know, from Rodney and me. Uh, so that combined with a, a very large volume of uh, information uh, that has come out in the market and, and certain, you know, writings and interviews that Rodney and I have done, we thought we would make sure uh, were shared in this forum as well for those who, who may have missed it. So uh, we have interviewed Ken Brinsden of Pilbara uh, for a podcast to be broadcast in its entirety next week. We have a short snippet of it uh, today, later in the program, uh, in particular vis-a-vis -vis their partnering process after they have uh, essentially cleansed the market with um, finalizing the Ganfeng transaction and putting out uh, scoping study economics. We're going to cover a lot more, you know, lack news um, with Ganfeng, Ganfeng's annual report, Ganfeng with Volkswagen, again, Marsha, 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 Ganfeng, Ganfeng, Ganfeng. But um, anyway, we have some interesting insights into the brine pumping in Argentina uh, that we witnessed, uh, which has resulted in the Argentine brine stocks have done very well, Lithium Americas in particular, but also Neolithium. So is that sustainable? Lax sold down another 12.5% of Kachari Olaraz, basically, and has a new 50-50 joint venture arrangement with Ganfeng, which is also their largest shareholder uh, and senior debt provider and offtake partner. Uh, they also announced uh, plans to, you know, highly likely grow from 25 to 40,000 tons, which, uh, you know, is interesting and, and shows a commitment of Ganfeng to that project. But uh, a little bit of a contrarian bet I see with uh, Ganfeng where most of their peers are kind of going hard rock, Ganfeng's making, uh, you know, its biggest bet um, in terms of, like, real dollars in, in the ground in, you know, Argentina, uh, a country, you know, that they've, they've not invested directly, you know, significantly in the past. So also a 40,000-ton brine greenfield is very, very large, right? That's unprecedented if you uh, compare... Livent is now, their whole strategy is to grow brownfield, you know, from where they have 20 years experience, you know, 20,000 tons today to 60,000 tons. So the same 40,000 tons, you know, their whole strategy right now is to execute that. And the time frame is about seven years. Um, and the capex for that, they've articulated is somewhere on the order of 500 to $600 million. So... Uh, the 25 million, uh, 25,000 ton definitive feasibility study that LAC is fully funded for, you know, if they go 40,000, uh, you know, it, it's likely they'll, you know, that project will, will need more capital. But uh, anyway, we'll see a, a good result, I guess, for, for LAC, you know, getting, you know, 160 million, actually not going to LAC, but for uh, project development. Um, so anyhow, so that's Ganfeng lack. Volkswagen was in the news with Ganfeng as well, but uh, very prominently Volkswagen, you know, major press release talking about security of supply, sustainability, you know, the importance of lithium, et cetera. So we talk a bit in detail on that as well as the Reuters article where they, they talk about America kind of waking up to um, the security and sustainability of supply question uh, with a get-together, you know, with Benchmark in May in D.C. Rodney later uh, talks, he wrote a note uh, debunking, you know, Morgan Stanley's fuzzy math, so we'll talk about that. 
Canaccord put a big note in the market suggesting long-term, you know, fifteen thousand ton dollars a ton for both carbonate and hydroxide is their expectation. They also have basically been guiding us to say, you know, twenty thirty is now the new twenty twenty-five because the market needs ten billion of investment to twenty twenty-five, but there will be a major inflection point there where between twenty twenty-five and twenty thirty another 20 billion of investment w will be needed to meet the demand expectations um, you know, for lithium. So without investment now, uh, they're suggesting a, a massive potential uh, shortage you know, post-2025. One thing I'd like to comment on uh, Ken Brinsden interview, it's just a M&A, I think, is going to be interesting, you know, potential kind of catalyst by the second half, because the Albemarle Mineral Resources transaction has not settled, right? So that's, they've guided that to be the second half. Uh, you know, I think a billion plus in min mineral resources coffers, and, and there'll, there'll be a debt deal that Albemarle does later in the year, I think will just be, you know, raise profile uh, to the sector and be a, a tailwind. And that combined with some outcome on Pilbara as well. Just M&A together with the positive U.S. stock market sentiment, um, you know, the IPO market's very strong. Uh, Lyft, uh, you know, is oversubscribed and priced at the high end of its range. Bitcoin, I see, has, has woken up, right? So there seems to be a bit of a, a risk on attitude. I don't know, it could disappear. You know, the markets have this uh, tendency of, you know, velocity, but, uh, I think, again, trade deal coming soon. Um, the Mueller report for Trump w was a potential negative. Uh, it's actually more uh, going the other way on that. Uh, so no rate hikes in, in America. So it, it's, it's kind of risk on. It feels like it. So th that's the, the tenor of this uh, 1999, uh, the Prince 1999. That, that, that's the, 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 the bullish kind of tenor of um, this longer than ever podcast. But first, uh, the first thing we're going to do here is I did an interview on Real Vision, which is a venture funded, you know, New York based financial media um, organization that's uh, putting out some really good content. Uh, I'd highly recommend anybody subscribe to this service. It's basically only $180 a year and then you have like full access to interviews like the one I gave which I'm about to to play but uh, they have uh, very substantial people like Stanley Druckenmiller, you know, Jim Pilata and and a whole host of other very high profile, high quality and, and long interviews. They're they're, they're uh, you know, it's podcasts are, are great, so these are are nice video cast uh, interviews. So with that, if you've heard or seen this already and don't want to hear it again, feel free to just fast forward the next 18 minutes. Um, after that 18-minute Real Vision interview, we then go into um, first uh, Ken Brinsden, then Rodney's note, then some talk on Volkswagen and Canaccord, uh, and uh, finally some of the smaller deal making and, and and notes for for some of the site visits that uh, Rodney has done welcome to investment ideas I'm your host Ed Harrison we're joined today by Howard Klein who has almost two decades of experience advising clients in the energy and mineral space he's going to talk to us today about a very different way of investing in green energy Howard Klein, it's very good to have you on Investment Ideas. Let's start actually with uh, your background. We're going to talk a little bit about an industry that you're very close to. Tell me how you got involved. Yeah, we're going to talk about the lithium industry. I um, have been involved advising companies in the natural resource space for about 17 years, and this included uh, you know, copper, gold, iron ore, even coal over the years. But about nine years ago when the Nissan Leaf and the Chevy Volt, you know, what I call the, the first round of EVs uh, kind of came or hybrids came 
uh, I got involved in the uh, helping companies that are developing uh, new mines in lithium. It was a bit of a false start in 2010 period, uh, but Tesla and Elon Musk with the Gigafactory and the success of Model S and then the Model X and, and now the Model 3 and uh, the, the transformation in China and Europe uh, toward bringing many, many more electric vehicles to market over the course of uh, you know, the next number of years has led to a massive demand shock to a very small industry, which is lithium. Lithium used to be controlled by three companies, Albemarle, SQM, and FMC. Uh, but it, it was only about a one billion revenue market, you know, 200,000 tons a year. That now is forecasted to grow to about a million tons a year by 2025 as a result of both electric cars, but also energy storage for utilities. You spoke about Tesla first and foremost, and you know, that's a big buzzword. But you're, you, in terms of this, we're not actually going to be talking about Tesla. So why are we talking about lithium? Why is lithium? Uh, rather than Tesla, the investment idea for you? Well, Tesla is, a, I think, a great company. They make great products. I can't comment on the valuation of the stock. It's very high if you compare it to other car companies, for example. So is it a car company? I don't know. But if you go back to the 1920s, there's a massive disruption happening to the car sector, the transportation sector and the utility sector. Where if you just look at the car sector, if this were 1920, you would have a choice of 300 car companies you could invest in and maybe a half a dozen or a dozen oil companies to invest in. Over a very long period of time, the upstream fuel, the oil companies, were a better place to put your money than to try to pick which of the car companies were going to be the winners. And we ended up with you know the big three. So Tesla's priced to perfection, you know, battery companies like Panasonic and Samsung and LG Chem, it's a very competitive business, but the margin, very substantial margins are available in the lithium, what I call the lithium fuel for the batteries which are feeding the cars. And because it's such a small industry that's growing, the, the, the lithium is forecast to grow 20% or so per year. That's five to seven times GDP. So the investment thesis is high, mar high sustainable margins in a mega trend, which is, you know, as we go from 2% penetration to 30% penetration, I see a 10 to 15 year mega trend or longer. And uh, companies that are developing new deposits have significant upside. And those who are currently producing should grow two and three and four times over the next kind of three five, seven years. The question I have in terms of, for viewers, this is a show about six to 24 month time frame in terms of investment. Where would you put your money in this space over that medium term time frame? That time frame is it's somewhat complicated, mm -hmm. right? Because um, I believe Albemarle should perform very well in that time frame because it's undervalued. It's, it's overall EBIT, EBITDA rating is lower than it has been historically. So to answer your question about a six to 24 month time frame, I do believe we're in a period, Almost stock has grew from 50 or 60 to 140 around this time last year, but it's fallen back to $85. But sentiment drove there, when they were at a dollar, 140, their even EBITDA multiple was something like 20, whereas mm. historically mm. it was more like 15 or so. so when Bitcoin went up at the end of 2017, like a whole host of, there was a lot of sentiment and risk on um, into commodities, into lithium, partly the Trump uh, tax reform expectation, deregulation, and a lot of that went away in much of last year. So there was a lot of negative headwinds, which has brought Albemarle uh, down. So I believe within this six to 24 month time frame, we're likely to get another price spike. It may not happen until Q4 of this year or early next year or sometime next year, but I believe another price spike is coming. So t talk to me about this supply demand. Where is this demand for in, uh, electric vehicles for lithium coming from? Well, the demand is coming from the electric cars mm -hmm. that are Battery factories are being built significantly. So when Tesla announced their Gigafactory in 2014, they were one of four. There's an industry 
consultant called Benchmark Minerals and that tracks this very carefully. So there were four megafactors, I think five gigawatts or, or, or more, I think mm -hmm. is their, um, their standard. There were four in 2014. There are now something like 71 battery megafactories, about two-thirds of which are in China, right. but also in Korea. There's some in Poland and Hungary and other European countries. And there are some being built here. Today in the news, SK Innovation is um, a Korean company that is building anywhere between 1.7 to 5 uh, gigawatt battery factory in Georgia. So batteries are driving this. These batteries are going into electric cars. Mm -hmm. So th that's what's driving the demand for lithium. And it's right? not just about Tesla, basically, is what you're saying. It's a demand from all different sources. Yes. Tesla is a story. It's not the story. China is a story. It's not the story. And the story of China, more than anything, is pollution in urban centers. So Shanghai, Beijing, they want their citizens to breathe, okay? Fossil fuel, internal combustion engine car sales are declining in, uh, you know, overall car sales have declined in China, but electric cars have increased. The government is not, it's not so much about subsidies as it is regulations disincentivizing uh, internal combustion engine car consumption so their cities can be clean. So it's, it's not a, so much a climate change. In China, it's pollution, but it's also industry of the future. This is part of, they, they realize they can't compete so much on internal combustion engine cars, so they are seeking on a global basis to compete in both batteries and, um, and electric vehicles and, and utility storage, et cetera. So it is government directed in, in China. And also Europe is a major story. So right. Dieselgate, right? Uh -huh. I, I've said this before. Dieselgate was the Fukushima moment for the... Um, European car industry. So Fukushima meant that Germany just shut down all their nuclear plants. Right. That was terrible for uranium. The uranium market has not, you know, come back yet, you know, because of that. Dieselgate was, diesel was the means for Europe to kind of meet their emission standards globally. And once they were caught out on that, they said, all right, forget diesel. We're now going all electric. So diesel is out in Germany. Forget about diesel in Germany. That's right. And VW, who is one of the biggest car companies in the world, one of the biggest that have uh, China uh, business, but also was at the forefront of the Dieselgate scandal, has been the most ambitious announcing uh, new models. And uh, I think and they're partnering with Ford here in the U.S. A further joint venture was announced this week. Mercedes and Daimler are talking about collaboration. It's interesting. You didn't mention the U.S. as much. You said Tesla, but you didn't say the United States. That's so right. So where is the U.S.? And when you talk about the demand growth store, 20% per year, yeah. where does the U.S. Uh, come into that? It's interesting that we, although Obama administration, there are subsidies for electric vehicle purchases that haven't yet been replaced. A lot of this is politics, right? America is a bit of a laggard mm -hmm. um, on on this, but at the same time, it fuels further potential upside because the expectations are so low for the U.S. that any change to that is more likely to be to the upside than to the downside. So we started out talking about Albemarle in particular because that's an S&P 500 company. Obviously, S&P 500 means it's uh, a, a, uh, a stalwart type of company. This is a U.S.-based company. That's, that's good as one play, potentially, but are there other plays that you would consider in the lithium space other than Albemarle? Yes, I think actually it's important to take a basket approach to this investment thematic. And um, a lot of the companies are listed in Australia or Canada, but for the purpose of this conversation and I think uh, a U.S. audience, if you're, I, I have a, uh, a newsletter called Lithium Ion Bull. I also have a podcast called Lithium Ion Rocks. And the purpose of both of those vehicles is to educate what I call this Jane and George battery pack investor. Now, not a Joe Sixpack, but you know, your audience, a sophisticated, self-directed, and most of those people can invest in a Canadian stock, can invest in a Hong Kong or, or Aussie-listed stock. So if you're looking just at a U.S. focus, there are five companies that are listed either properly on the NASDAQ or the NYSE. I'm not talking about penny stocks on the OTC. And the three that I like most, uh, well, one is Albemarle, two is Livent, which mm -hmm. is a spinoff of FMC. It's now, the, it's the only pure play producer in the space, and the stock is, went public via IPO. 
in uh, at $17. The stock is now at about $12.5, $13. They have an Argentina asset. They have the best technology. They're focused on lithium hydroxide, which is the chemical type that goes into Panasonic batteries, which goes into Tesla. That's about a $2 billion market cap company. And there's one other one, which is earlier stage. It's only about a $50 million market cap, but it's, it's called Piedmont Lithium. Uh, it's based in America. It's a North Carolina asset. For a long time, actually, 100% of the world's lithium came from North Carolina from mm -hmm. the 50s until the early 1990s. It was part of the Manhattan Project. Lithium was used for the hydrogen bomb, but then it had a whole bunch of offshoots into ceramics and glass, et cetera. But uh, the first lithium battery you know, for Sony back in the early 90s came from ores in North Carolina. So a lot of the uh, lithium development companies have been in Australia, hard rock mines that uh, have gotten financed. What you have in North Carolina and Piedmont is very similar ores to all of the companies that are getting financed in Australia, but right here in America with all of the history. So it's kind of a, like a back to the future um, dynamic in North Carolina. And uh, it's not a well-known company. It was originally Australian listed. They only did the NASDAQ listing uh, in May of uh, last year. So it's only been available to trade to uh, less than a, 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 yeah, a Jane and George battery pack for less than a year. Uh, but it, it's getting very good traction. It's still riskier, right? risk-reward. It's 50 million market cap. Uh, they're still, they're not in production. They won't be in production probably for another two or three years. They're still drilling. They're acquiring land. And, but importantly, Albemarle, through a joint venture into Australia, they are investing $2 billion, valuing an asset at about $2.3 billion in Australia, a company that was at a similar stage to Piedmont, you know, only two or three years ago. Right. So, so it, give, it gives you an indication of the potential upside in a you know, an exploration and development story that's possible. And and again, so those would be three names that I would look at as a way to play this theme. Albemarle probably, in my judgment, has 30 to 50% upside. Then uh, if you look at consensus, uh, it's covered by 20 analysts, right? A lot of them have buys, some of them have holds. But on balance, you know, their target prices are between 110 and 110. $25. Um, so that's a 30 to 50% upside. Similarly for Livent and something with like, like Piedmont, uh, you know, the upside potentially is, is substantially more than that, but it, it comes w with commensurate risk. So uh, in terms of the, the, this investment thesis over the next six to 24 months, when would you consider the best time to sell? When would you know this thesis either it, it's, uh, it's not working in, on the one hand or uh, now it's time to take some profits. It's a, it's a hard question to, to answer. So like I said, I, I believe that sometime within a 24-month time frame, we are going to have another price spike. It probably won't be as substantial as this spike we had, this five times increase in the spot price. But we will, because there's not sufficient investment going into the sector, uh, there's the likelihood of, for there to be a shortage. And if there is a shortage, you have a shortage combined with positive sentiment toward the sector, it's possible that an Albemarle might get to a 20 times EBITDA like it did um, last year. In that case, I would say take some profits. If you, if you double, if something has 30 to 50% upside and it goes up you know, 100%, you should definitely take profits. How would I know if it's not working? Mm -hmm. uh, I would watch, you know, production hiccups, right, mm -hmm. and, and, and under execution. execution. If, and that's why you need to take a portfolio approach, because if Albemarle or Livent or you know, Piedmont or any other company, it's probable some of them won't execute. So just owning one, you, you know, the thematic may be fine, but um, you may get hurt on an individual stock. So I would watch the execution, because it's a it's a volume story in the case of Albemarle and Livent. It's a can they grow the volumes according to what they have guided the market. In a Piedmont case, it's a um, getting not, to market. It's it, it, it's getting funded and right. getting into production and hitting milestones and getting permitted and, and and those things. So it's more like 
if you can compare it to like a biotech that goes from a phase one to phase two, phase three, and then gets bought by a strategic, right, that, that or partners or joint ventures with a strategic, you need to follow those things closely in Piedmont's case. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. you know, I wish actually we had more time to talk about the dynamics of the industry because I think it's a really fascinating story and uh, hope to have you back at some point in the future. I would be happy to go in greater detail the next time. Thanks so much, Ed. Thanks, Howard. Howard's idea is to gain exposure to lithium via three specific investments. If you invest in one company, he recommends Albemarle Corporation, the Charlotte, North Carolina-based specialty chemicals producer that has a constituent in the S&P 500. This is the more mainstream play, where Howard sees the potential for gains of 30 to 50%. He would take profits if the stock doubles in the next 6 to 24 months. He also recommends Livent as a pure play lithium investment spun off from FMC Corporation late last year. Livent is a smaller company, but because of its leverage to lithium and its size, it offers greater upside potential. Finally, Howard also recommends Piedmont Lithium Limited, an emerging lithium company based in North Carolina that hasn't begun production and is therefore the riskiest play of the three investments. Piedmont is focused on bringing its mine in North Carolina online and beginning production in the next few years. We now turn to a short snippet uh, on Ken Brinsden and the partnering process that he announced. Uh, Pilbara put in the market an enormous amount of news, which will be the focus of next week's uh, episode nine. But uh, Pilbara, for those Jane and George battery packs, uh, trades in the U.S. on the OTC exchange under ticker symbol PILBF. It is also a widely traded and fairly liquid stock on the ASX, ticker symbol PLS. Pilbara's market cap is about a billion U.S. dollars. It has a wide institutional following with uh, hedge funds and mutual funds domestically and internationally. It has a, a fair number of sell-side analysts covering them, but also a very broad retail investor base, uh, many of which uh, have been with the stock since a penny that Neil Biddle, the original founder and geologist who knew they had a very large and high-grade resource here, uh, you know, has made a lot of people a lot of money, and there's a, a very large fan base uh, which helps with the trading liquidity of the stock. It's just amazing. It's just been in four years that uh, this stock has gone from like one cent. It's now what seventy-five cents or eighty cents. You know, it's been as high as a dollar twenty-five. But like, what a phenomenal! stock market story, but more importantly, it's it's a real success in the making. You know, there's fits and starts, you know, startups are not perfect, but just the rapid time frame, relatively low CapEx compared to uh, you know, other projects. I, I like the company. I've talked about it uh, and I like their, you know, downstream strategy. I, I've missed that whole ride I just talked about. I completely um, missed. I, I only recently bought some shares. And that was a bit of a tell. I've had, been sitting on the sidelines with cash for quite some time. You know, last year, I just had to, you know, take some profits. And, um, you know, so I think I traded it reasonably well, not as, as good as I would have hoped, but uh, have been sitting on a fair bit of cash for you know, the better part of nine to, to 12 months. And uh, I've started putting a little bit of it, you know, to work because I see just very positive signs. And we're going to talk about a lot of those, the, the Volkswagen news uh, this week. The irreplaceable element of the electric era, lithium. That's just what makes me excited, you know? It's 1999. Our, our objective in Washington... Well, formally launching the partnering process is really to interconnect um, the future offtake that's available from our stage three project to to anticipated chemical facility uh, where we can continue to build out an, an economic interest in the, the, the downstream chemical conversion. And we'd note that uh, as people look to secure offtake, uh, a question that often gets asked is, well, how do we how do we um, participate in that offtake and is there the option to uh, co-invest in, in the mine? So the three, in our view, are sort of inextricably linked. There is more vertical integration occurring the quality of the product or products in the supply chain. 
And one of the ways that both of those objectives can be achieved is with deeper levels of vertical integration. And, and that's coincident with one of our strategic objectives. You know, we really like the quality in the, the Pilgangura spodumene. We believe our customers feel the same way. And we'd like to leverage that into the, the value-added uh, chemicals, in particular, um, you know, battery-ready lithium hydroxide and, and uh, carbonate. So, so that's the that's the background by which we're considering the process. And and to your question, Howard, well, well, what does a partner look like? Well, you know, there's several things in that, and I'm not sure it's easy to provide sort of any one answer. I know that there is people with um, chemical expertise downstream who are looking to secure more raw material supply. Uh, like the idea that we could work with a partner who comes with that chemical expertise. And, and that they value our resource in the ground. Okay, great. And uh, like I said, you appointed Macquarie, who ran a very effective process, it seems, at uh, Wajina uh, for mineral resources, getting a, a pretty good price. I've commented about that. So we'll see what the landscape looks like, uh, you know, over the next, I think, mid-year. You said you would decide on the outcome. Yeah, that's right. So, so we've been working on this process for quite a while to pre the, the um, formal launch. Do a certain amount of work to, to get rid of the process, uh, being able to demonstrate a path through to the mines, mines expansion with um, you know the scoping study, uh, some consideration around what chemical facilities could look like and the scale and, and potential location of those facilities, uh, and then of course um, you know establishing a data room so that people can assess the, the opportunity. The team's been working really hard on that stuff for, for quite some period of time, and then, uh, coincident with the formal launch, well, that's really you know, the process that Pilbara Minerals has to go through is to, in effect, cleanse the market, and and we've been placing shares to to Ganfeng, so so clearly uh, uh, the process that we you know we're considering is part of that cleansing, as, as is other you know, other important initiatives that that are occurring in the company, things like the POSCO. Uh, progress of the POSCO relationship, the progress of production at a site level, um, you know, commercial production is another important objective and, and outcome now. Um, and, and, yeah, it's imperative that we get the market cleansed so that we can continue to progress what's now, you know, a closed process for, for the purpose of partnering. Um, we, we can't really say too much more about it now other than say that there's a process underway and, and um, we hope to achieve you know, useful aims for the future growth of the company. I've called what's happening in the Pilbara the Thrilla in the Pilbara after that Thrilla in Manila third fight in the Philippines between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. I've nicknamed Chris Ellison the greatest after Muhammad Ali, who started life as Cassius Clay in Louisville, Kentucky, a southern accent state not dissimilar from where his joint venture partner, Luke Kissam, came from. I had an opportunity to meet uh, Chris Ellison. Uh, I think anytime you're doing a joint venture, you're doing a joint venture with, with a human, with a person. And I think to be able to talk to their leadership and them to get a chance to talk to our leadership uh, to make sure it made sense from a culture standpoint, um, uh, that they were the kind of people, quite frankly, that they want to make money and they know how to make money. And so uh, it, that it, you're always happy whenever there's an alignment of goals. I've not actually ever given Pilbara a nickname, but Joe Frazier does not immediately come to mind. But it does for another boxer from Philadelphia. Paul Graves, the CEO of Liven, was quoted in the Financial Times as saying that they are looking at acquisitions in Argentina and Australia. Okay, we're about halfway through this longest ever podcast, and uh, the next half is largely just Rodney and me and uh, various banter and analyses, starting with uh, Rodney's dissection of Morgan Stanley's fuzzy math on the demand side. Yes, uh, how I, I wrote it, so just to encapsulate the entire argument, uh, Morgan Stanley has a supply in 2025 at roughly 850,000 tons, which is very much market-related. Morgan Stanley also has EV sales in 2025 at around 10 million pure electric and about 4.5 million each for plug-in 
and for hybrid electric vehicles. And those are, again, very much around consensus and actually, funny enough, higher than Albemarle's forecasts in, their, in the slide that they've uh, released in their corporate presentation. The difference comes in demand, and we've got Albemarle sitting at a million tonnes, along with a lot of the other big uh, lithium suppliers, at around a million tonnes in 2025, and you, you've got Morgan Stanley at 700,000. So we have a 300,000 difference. If you strip out industrial uses, etc., it all boils down to how much lithium will be needed for electric vehicles in total. And when we drill down into that number, it seems that the differential sits with a combination of the average size of battery and with the lithium intensity per kilowatt hour. Uh, so what you have is you have uh, Albemarle at about 0.93 kilos per kilowatt hour and Morgan Stanley that doesn't disclose it. However, if you apply Albemarle's estimate of lithium intensity to Morgan Stanley's effective EV sales estimates for 2025, you actually get a much higher demand number and you would bring, effectively, you would bring the two companies together in, in, uh, in their forecast for demand. Now, there is an argument, and Morgan Stanley would possibly raise it about energy density because that has been improving, and I see recently CATL has a battery that now has an energy density around 300, uh, a count of about 300, which, of course, uh, is linked to the nickel-rich cathodes. And, of course, if you have high energy density, you need less batteries per kilowatt hour, and that could be part of the fall in prices that's projected to 2025. You've got Bloomberg's new energy fund uh, projecting uh, battery pack, average battery pack prices to drop from about $147 a kilowatt hour to uh, 94 by 2024. So it will be, it would need to be determined how much of that drop is derived from simply increasing a production capacity and how much, how much of it is driven by technology improvements and energy density of batteries. But ultimately, no matter which way you look at it, it looks like the lithium intensity and average kilowatt hour of an electric vehicle estimate for Morgan Stanley is very low. And, um, you know, it's the, the rise in the average uh, and the average battery pack size of all EVs has been phenomenal in the last year, some of it probably attributable to Chinese EV subsidies changing in 2018 and others being simply offsetting range anxiety, et cetera, and, uh, and dropping prices. But I think I look forward to them possibly readdressing and looking at their numbers uh, and uh, possibly restating those because ultimately... Demand of 700,000 tonnes is well below the expected supply of 850, and therefore those two lines cross around uh, an OPEX cost of around $7,000 a tonne, which then gives you their low price forecast. So if they were to readdress their numbers and possibly increase their lithium intensity per kilowatt hour and average battery pack size, and move it out to 850, you would then see a balanced market in their model, and then you would see a likely forecast in price around the marginal producer at $10,000, $12,000 a tonne. And then, of course, you know you need to give an allocation for cost of capital, et cetera, for building the plant above uh, operating uh, costs. So that's the main gist of the argument. And, uh, you know, we've seen recently... Canaccord, in their latest notes, I see that they've increased their uh, lithium intensity uh, expectation to 2025 up to 0.9 of a kilo. So a lot of the, the market consensus clusters around 0.8 to, uh, to, one key, uh, to one kilo per kilowatt hour. Uh, and then you have, as I say, this Morgan Stanley outliers. So that's what I've picked up. It's, it's the only difference that there is, and uh, hopefully they will acknowledge that given lower prices, we're likely to see bigger battery packs in the future, and that's definitely what you're seeing in the data coming out. So the bottom line is uh, Morgan Stanley is outlier conservative on the demand side.
terms of lithium, lithium intensity, you know, per kilowatt hour. So how much, how much lithium is in a battery? We've talked a lot about uh, the air supply, Morgan Stanley. This is all a demand argument, and uh, they're outlier kind of on both. Uh, let's talk about Argentina, in particular, Lithium Americas and Ganfeng, as well as, you know, Neolithium uh, commentary uh, on their site visit. Uh, with respect to um, the Neolithium uh, site visit, obviously an asset that we like. Uh, it falls within the three brands that uh, I think will be funded this year, Neolithium, Lithium Power, and Sal de Vida, the balance uh, of the deposit uh, sitting with Galaxy. Obviously, those are moving at different paces. Lithium Power has completed a definitive feasibility study and got a live pricing on its capex, so uh, also advancing well. I think Neolithium is a, is a good project, and I expect to see uh, some interesting news coming from them, although they still have some pilot plant work and uh, a feasibility study to finish. The Neolithium and Lithium Power, I know you've written about both of them, and they're geographically uh, very close to each other, even though they're in different countries. Um, so there, there's some similarity to that deposit. But uh, Neolithium stock has, like, doubled since the beginning of the year. Uh, Lithium Powers is kind of just, you know, sitting there. So I'm just wondering if, uh, on a relative basis, um, you know, might we see some interest in, in Lithium Power? Um, you know, on the back of the enthusiasm for you know, not only neolithium, but, uh, you know, lithium Americas and some of the other Argentine brines. Yes, it'll be interesting to see. I guess it always depends where you are on the life cycle. And, you know, neolithium is still in the sort of good news flow as they build up to a feasibility study, but they will still need to do their environmental permitting, etc. Lithium power is waiting on... Uh, on the on the final uh, permitting for the litio tenements, the new tenements, and also the environmental impact assessment. So I think those two are probably the big catalysts for uh, a run-up in the stock, whereas Neolithium has had the good news of a revised study that they released where they shrunk uh, the expected production volume and capex, so their IR is looking very good, and... Um, you know, generating the interest from uh, from the potential investment community or a partner uh, for their project. So, uh, you know, they're in the good news phase. They've still got to, you know, go through all the steps. But, again, I think both undervalued relative to, uh, to their potential. Volkswagen had big news with Ganfeng, but they highlighted, uh, you know, sustainability of supply chain, not only security of supply, but, uh, you know, sustainability and, and seem they referenced, um, you know, Southern and Central European deposits. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I thought it was, uh, it was very interesting that clearly in the immediate term, they need to secure supply where it's available. So they've gone with Ganfin, but they've stated that they've set themselves a goal of promoting lithium production in Europe in the medium term. So that, you know, they've mentioned that there are relevant deposits in Central and Southern Europe. So we know some of those names. They're likely to be, you know, the obvious candidates of Savannah, Infinity, and even, you know, uh, some of the uh, you know, other projects like Zinwald with Bacchanora that's located in Germany, not far from the uh, auto industry. So it's likely that in the medium term they're going to support those. But for now, they have to take... Lithium, where they see it, and that is available from, uh, you know, from Ganfen. Europe and what Europe does is interesting and very much something that I think will be an increased focus and something we will talk about in future podcasts. If you look at the valuation of a given company like Lithium Americas or Neolithium, I think Cormark, you know, is making this argument, but others like Canaccord and in, in, Canada make this argument, just saying the market is telling us they believe prices are going down to 7,000, and therefore an enormous amount of bad news is priced into the stock. So even if prices do continue to fall from you know 11,000 to 10,000, 
uh, the, the markets are, are discounting even more uh, aggressive outcomes than, than that. Uh, but I want to ask you, on the capital intensity question, uh, Rodney, uh, the Canaccord uh, uh, put out a note with um, a long-term, you know, from 2027, you know, carbonate and hydroxide flat at 15,000. I mean, no premium, you know, to, for either of them. But they're, they had very specific, surprisingly negative short-term uh, to medium-term, you know, price forecasts. Uh, I, I'm an admirer of, of Reg and, and Larry's work as well. Just too complex. They have this uh, this graphic I tweeted about, which has all the various factors that go into forecasting pricing, which show how complicated it is. Uh, and then they published, you know, very precise numbers. I think those precise numbers are significant influence. I mean, Canaccord, you know, unlike Cormark and a few other, you know, wholly, uh, you know, Canada-focused investment banks. I mean, Canaccord has representation in Australia, in London, uh, and in, in Toronto. I have analysts in all those locations. They're the biggest, have been the biggest funder of lithium projects, you know, over the last, you know, five or, or longer years. So they really know this market well. Uh, they have been supportive uh, and are constructive, the, the, no tsunami of supply and other type of uh, characterizations there. But uh, I do believe they represent a lot of lithium, prospective lithium suppliers. So the supply in their models uh, may be a little bit optimistic. In their defense, they, they do caveat it heavily with, uh, with some good work showing you know, how supply has disappointed in the past, and they do handicap uh, production of hard rock uh, production versus conversion capacity. They're well aware of the pitfalls. You know, those are always highlighted and always enjoying seeing the graphics from Tara Berry and Oracobre about, you know, forecasted expected supply to come on stream and actual. And so they always give a good insight, you know, and a realistic insight, even in spite of all of the hard rock coming online. If you look at, uh, you know, at Oricobra's forecast, that, you know, they were conservative for this year, and it looks like they're going to be spot on again. Look at the announcement uh, of Pilbara. They are delaying stage two. They're talking about September 2020, but I would say realistically, stage two is now off the table until 2021, in my opinion. Stage one have a few hiccups of its own. We've chatted to Ken about that. The big question is Wajina. I'm a little bit less worried than about Wajina. Albemarle, I just think, will be disciplined. And also this whole argument, the, the, the Ganfeng uh, Volkswagen MOU, right? It's long-term, right? What Ken told us, you know, it's long-term. So any supply coming from Wajina from Albemarle is by definition going to be very short-term. If you look at the response lately, in fact, if anything, the carbonate price in China went up the last couple of weeks. You know, the market has shown quite a lot of discipline. Albemarle has moved out three, three and a half thousand tons from Q1 out to the rest of the year. SQM has been quite cautious in its approach to ramping up production. Conversation with Ken, yeah. and he, I asked him the question, is it the material or is it the converter that, you know, that creates the magic to produce a battery-grade material? And he said it's a bit of both. If, if sub-6% is falling short of creating battery-grade material and that market isn't particularly buoyant in the technical-grade market, then for how much longer can sub-6% find a home if, uh, if the bottom's going to fall out in the technical grade price as time goes on. And as you have uh, good quality long-term supply from uh, companies like Pilbara and Altura and also Wajina, right? The, this Pilbara region is, um, you know, good, good quality ore with big, long, sustainable mines. On the hard rock side and, and comments from VW and the sustainability and the proximity, um, you wrote a note on, on Piedmont um, and you, you've also uh, you know, visited Ioneer, which had news. So why don't you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, the Piedmont uh, note, if anyone is interested out there listening, it's uh, published on our libel.com website. How does it articles? Yeah, just visit uh, www.libull.com. Actually, thanks for uh, plugging that, uh, Rodney. We, we do have a revamped uh, website, um, 
and branding. And uh, so all of Rodney's articles, all of my articles, all the podcasts, all the interviews that we've done are, are now in, in uh, you know, we're very excited about, um, you, you found uh, in Cape Town, uh, Josie Ray. Uh, thank you, Rodney, absolute you know, genius millennial uh, who has very quickly um, you know, helped us uh, step up uh, the, the lithium-ion rocks, the lithium-ion bull game, uh, dragged us into... She's dragged us, kick, she's dragged us kicking and streaming into the 21st century. <laughs> That's right. The, the Jetsons' future, fueled by <laughs> Flintstone mines and brines. So, yeah, on the Iron Air front... They recently uh, released an update on the sulfuric acid plant. That's a contract awarded to SNC, Lavalin, and DuPont, and uh, had an, a very impressive $60 million cut in the capex from about 173 to to 111. And uh, you know, again, impressive. Uh, you know, companies doing the provide doing the provision of that. And, uh, you know, there's potential for that to be separately funded, but it went from a turnkey solution to a, to a you know, built for purpose. So, you know, that was very good news uh, for, the, for the CapEx of Ionia. That's that shaved 60 million off, and they're expecting more CapEx reductions as they progress towards finishing their DFS. Uh, and that's, you know, another company that we enjoy visiting. I'm busy with a note on that, but uh, certainly as they get to their DFS and given the strength of their management and board, some pioneers there, James Calloway, who was one of the founders of Oricobre, uh, you know, their first Greenfields brine project to be developed in 20 years, which is, uh, takes some doing. Obviously, it's had its moments, but they are progressing in stage two coming up for them. I look forward to uh, to finishing that note and sharing it with everyone. Well, I think this is very uh, relevant in, in context because uh, there was also that article from Reuters talking about the upcoming uh, benchmark event in, in D.C. It seems like there's a, a, a powerful response happening in the U.S. to this uh, security of supply and, and recognition of China's um, very significant, um, you know, uh, being ahead uh, in, in, in focusing on this. So uh, companies like Piedmont, which you wrote about, Ioneer, um, you know, and, and Thacker Pass at LAC, Standard Lithium, um, and also the Salton Sea were, were referenced in, uh, in that article. Um, I've written about, you know, young Americans before, you know, and also talked about uh, in terms of ice cream uh, flavors, you know, my, my preference for plain vanilla. Um, you know, Ioneer I've called cookies and cream uh, and, and boron and, and lithium. That's a, another good flavor. Uh, you know, the Thacker Pass, uh, you know, I wrote as Rocky Road, right? That thing has been, you know, 10 years kind of in, in the making, uh, both them and Thacker Pass, I'm sorry, and Ioneer, you know, do have acid uh, need. So I, I kind of stopped calling them soft rock, uh, you know, but called them acid rock. But uh, in fairness, um, Ioneer is not soft rock, actually. Ioneer is hard rock and whatever clay they have, you know, again, they're stockpiling, not using. So as I view the landscape of American opportunities, you know, I see plain vanilla, you know, spodumene pegmatite, you know, North Carolina. And again, I, I would encourage everybody to read your very comprehensive note on Piedmont. Um, so I don't really want to comment, you know, further on that, although I, I, I wrote a little bit about it as well in comparison to, to AVZ. Uh, you know, Ioneer is a conventional process uh, on a conventional hard rock sealocyte. Um, Thacker Pass, you know, is arguing that it's a conventional process, which very well may be true, but it's on an unconventional, um, you know, clay, you know, never been done before. And then, you know, Standard Lithium and uh, Salton Sea, these are also, you know, science projects. And, uh, you know, it, going back to that note that I wrote, um, I, I believe that, going back to Herit, uh, Garrett Fueling, a lot of these projects need to be funded, right? The equity market should be receptive. There should be a, a, a lot of these things should be at higher valuations so that they can get funded. 
So this is not to say that Thacker Pass or, or Standard Lithium, you know, shouldn't get done. It just it, it requires a higher cost of capital uh, because it's not been done before. But I believe many, many more projects need to get funded and the valuations of the companies need to be higher and, and investors just need to start funding them. And, and, you know, some of them won't work, right? But so in order of preference, uh, you know, I think the two most likely projects, you know, are Piedmont and, and Ioneer. Um, and, and then after that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I think, uh, you know, how the reality is if you look at the current logistics map of how, you know, the EV supply chain, from a, from a pure supply risk perspective, you can't continue to maintain what's going on. And so it's, it's a good initiative what's going on in Washington because you've got, you know, if you look in the case of, of Hard Rock, of Spodgerman Concentrate, it gets mined one place, it gets shipped halfway across the world to be processed into a chemical, then shipped from there to a cathode plant, then shipped from there to a cell slash battery pack, and then finally to the EV manufacturing facility. So in order to, you know, if you think about it, if a lot of those functions are located in different countries, at any one point, if there is any restriction, export tax, export ban, shortage, etc., it throws out the entire, you know, it, it throws you out in the, you know, of the loop if you are the, the EV manufacturer. So, uh, and also just as a country. So it, it makes sense that you start to have uh, vertically integrated complete supply chains, not just the, uh, the hard rock to hydroxide, but also the cathode, the cell, et cetera, and the EV manufacturing facility. I agree with that, but also from a country perspective, as good and important uh, is this Volkswagen Ganfeng, you know, MOU. Uh, there's, Garrett has mentioned this as well. It's not smart for Germany to be wholly reliant on, let's say, China uh, for supply because contracts could change and supply chains could change. You know, if there were some sort of shortage, so. Um, at the same time, that Gadenfang doesn't want to get you know too much from any one customer. Um, you know, Volkswagen doesn't want to get anything from any one supplier, and therefore, I, I noted in that Volkswagen article, I, I counted the number of times I think they they mentioned the word sustainable. Right, it's very much in the first or second sentence, and it was mentioned I think four or five times. So sustainability is very serious. I think a lot of this. The Volkswagen didn't have to announce this news. I think there's definitely an element of politics behind Volkswagen making such a big, you know, pronouncement here. But nevertheless, it's it's good for the sector. It's good for the thesis that OEM producing countries like Europe should have their own domestic source of supply of raw materials, and likewise for the second biggest auto market in the world, you know, the, the U.S. So it's just a matter of time, right? SK Innovation has come with a battery plant. Cathode plants, you know, exist and will, I think, continue to exist in the U.S. And, uh, you know, so it's very exciting times. Uh, this industry, this disruption of the transportation industry, the utility industry is a, a major shock, as I mentioned in that Real Vision interview, to um, a very small lithium market, and many, many more projects need to get funded, both traditional hard rock and brine. You know, hard rock's the easiest, brine, you know, perhaps second easiest, or at least known, but other types of deposits uh, will need to get funded uh, and different, you know, uh, types. I think, I think the truth, to my mind, of the VW MOU with Ganfin is is in my mind, VW has been the OEM that's been the most committed and the most progressed. Yes, you know, they've stated high capex spend in the EV space, but they are the ones, I think, who are actually taking it the most seriously, not having, you know, sort of, you know, to my mind, without naming names, you've got some of the other OEMs, German OEMs, basically doing it by a thousand inches of movement with basically expanding slightly hybrid, uh, you know, 
kilowatt capacity, et cetera, to just meet the, the EU emission, you know, the emission requirements. So they do the bare minimum just to meet it in, in, the, in, the, in the hope of, of making a shift later on when batteries are cheap and, uh, and the economics make complete and utter sense. But that's not how this industry is evolving. It's requiring that you take the leap of faith earlier. Uh, and you've seen, I put it in the, in the Piedmont report about how, you know, they have now gone to the VDA and they're saying they must commit to lithium-ion batteries only and to promoting EVs over ice. So VW is very much at the forefront, and I think they are the first that have actually connected the dots as to what this means for raw materials. And now you've seen it. So I think as others step up to the plate and make the real commitment, they're going to work out that there is likely to be uh, a problem down the line, and uh, we shall see how they react to it, because as we've spoken to it, I guess Hard Rock offers a quicker route, you know, Pilbara from drill to production four years, but uh, yeah, we'll have to see how they do that. And before we sign off, just that last point you were making, or the second to last point you were making about VW very much being on the forefront, um, but a lot behind that, uh, I, I tweeted yesterday, uh, Benchmark's uh, reaction to this was um, a scramble for lithium uh, as others are, are following, and, and that comment is similar to what Peter Campbell in our earlier podcast, uh, The Future of the Car, mentioned. We know that China is doing a lot to secure uh, a lot of the raw materials to try and give themselves uh, an advantage over others in this. China strategically has looked at the industry and decided almost to, to bypass internal combustion engine technology as an area of expertise and try and, uh, try and secure as its national interest uh, a leadership position in electric vehicle technology and some of the materials that go into that. So it's likely there will be a lot of companies scrabbling uh, for these materials in the years and decades. Yes, a scramble for raw materials in which the United States is a bystander, according to Simon Moores of Benchmark Minerals. Great testimony to Senator Murkowski and Senator Manchin at the U.S. Senate. Benchmark Minerals popularized the battery arms race. And now the scramble for lithium. Well, I think there's more dirt being turned where, you know, battery plants are being built. So now the supply chain is moving to front and center in terms of, uh, in terms of you know, how you're going to, you know, meet the raw materials demand. But it's interesting where you look at the price of cobalt and you look at the price of lithium, I think if I were an OEM, I would be certainly, you know, looking to tie in both at these levels. The Volkswagen PR offensive for this deal with Ganfeng uh, was very impressive, and I feel compelled to quote directly from some of the language there. So first and foremost, lithium, the title, lithium, the irreplaceable element of the era with a backdrop of a hard rock mine. Lithium is the most important raw material. It makes a decisive contribution to implementing Volkswagen's ambitious group goal of launching the largest e-offensive in the automotive industry and has projected 22 million e-vehicles worldwide by 2028. Volkswagen is pressing ahead with the fundamental system change in individual mobility and is consistently focusing on electric drives. Lithium will, in the near future, be one of the most sought-after raw materials on Earth. Cobalt, on the other hand, the percentage of this raw material is to be reduced from its present 12 to 14 percent within the next three to five years, and Volkswagen is working on further development of cobalt-free batteries. Mining is considered the future-proof solution, both commercially and in terms of sustainability. Lithium extracted from mining for the future-relevant intermediate product lithium hydroxide is commercially more attractive, more stable to extract, easier to scale, 
and generally more sustainable. Australia is the leader, stable political system, high degree of transparency, and ambitious environmental standards. Lithium extracted from ore is more suitable for batteries of the next generation. As part of our partnership with Quantum Scope, Volkswagen aims to start small-scale production of solid cells by 2025. We are focusing on lithium from the mining industry because this form of extraction means more stable prices, guaranteed capacities, and transparent sustainability. Volkswagen is committed to sustainability initiatives such as the Responsible Minerals Initiative and the World Economic Forum's Global Battery Alliance. Volkswagen has also set itself a goal of promoting lithium production in Europe in the medium term. There are relevant deposits in Central and Southern Europe, for example. The thing we haven't spoken about, Howard, is the Bloomberg article about lithium batteries are here to stay, sunk costs, and the preferred technology. And again, you know, it's been, it's been an, a 20-year overnight success, lithium-ion batteries. So, as you say, with an abundance of lithium, uh, it is a positive because it can meet you know, the future demand when we live in a world where the vast majority of cars that are sold are electric. Last point, because uh, I did forget to mention it, a meaningful deal uh, was Sigma with Mitsui and their 30 million prepay. There's going to be a conference call for that uh, next week. Uh, this fits in, again, with the hard rock in OEM jurisdictions, you know, mentality. As I understand, Sigma is a good project, you know, low cost, you know, spodumene, you know, high grade. Uh, looking forward to their, I think, definitive feasibility study and construction decision. But, uh, you know, a $30 million prepay, prepay you know, non-dilutive, you know, with a major Japanese player, Mitsui, who is also, uh, as I understand it, very involved with, you know, Vale, you know, on the nickel side. In, uh, in Brazil. Well, there is one other deal we didn't speak about as well, which was Desert Line with the offtake with BASF. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, I haven't so actually... that was an interesting one in my, back, in my backyard in Namibia. So well done to those guys. Um, and uh, also, you know, impressive to see BASF stepping up. Lithium-ion rocks, lithium-ion bull, and through our respective LinkedIn and Twitter posts, Rodney and I may share with our audience some rationale for a stock for which we have conviction, to own or not to own. If you agree or disagree with and act on or against the rationale of anything said or written in this or any other lithium-ion rocks or lithium-ion bull, that's your free choice. But to be clear, what you are listening to or reading is not investment advice and may not be unbiased. It should not be construed as an investment recommendation to buy or sell any security. Rodney and I are not registered investment advisors nor broker-dealers. Please visit libull.com for further disclaimers.